Yes. You are the very first priest that I've had on my channel, I think, ever. Oh, okay. You, I'm, you, I'm honored. That's great. You, and then, and then I'm, I'm a hermit, too, so probably the first hermit you've had on your channel as well. Yes, sir. Um, Father, Father um, when I went to the Palooza in Richmond, and I saw you wandering around in your priestly garments, your robe. Yes. Everybody was pointing at you and saying, that's him. That's him. And I didn't yeah. know. I didn't know. You. And my friend, Lindsay, she was watching my videos and saw you and started blowing my phone up and said, you got, you got to get them for me. You got to get them for me. So here you are. <laughs> <laughs> that's great yes Lindsay and, and Paul I, I'm sure Paul has a religious name now that's uh uh but he was one of my postulants one of many postulants I I had when I was with the Franciscans of the Immaculate so so father do you go by like do you know father Leonard Mary at EWTN I I don't know the friars there no uh hey, he, um I used to work at EWTN in security and got to know him pretty good. He comes over here every now and then. Oh, wow. If I hear okay. the doorbell, I'll bring him in and, and introduce you. But uh, <laughs> you're you're the first priest I tried to get my priest to come on, but he said I would have to rebrand before he <laughs> Okay. So, well, I'm, I'm, I'm claiming holy ignorance. I don't know anything about your channel. Uh, <laughs> so... Well, aren't you a musician too? Oh yeah, no, I was the opening act at the Palooza there. Uh, yeah, we we had uh, we did a set of of uh, six six songs while uh, there, and then uh, I just roamed around. I, I helped out with a couple other groups as well, but that was uh, the main reason I came. I brought a sax player and had real drums, not the electronic stuff. Because uh, <laughs> I'm an old geezer. Wow. I, the reason I didn't see your opening act is because I did. I, I was doing interviews in a VIP room with with Margaret. Okay. Her girl. Yeah. Yes. Then after that, I went back to my table that I didn't know I had out in the out in the plaza, and I saw this big muscle guy, and he he ended up being a Greek Orthodox brother. But he was about 28 or 30, and I had to arm wrestle him. So I called him to my table and told him to sit down. And 10 minutes later, I was puking. I threw oh, no. like three or four times, and I made my way to that auditorium. All right. And I laid there till for about two hours, and then I went to the hotel. So I missed you. <laughs> That's okay. Oh. Uh... Well, um, well. Anyway, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I don't know if you, you have something specific you want to want me to talk about, or if you want to discuss something. But um, yes, sir, I do. First of all, I'm just going to straight up admit I'm scared to death talking to you. Okay. No. I respect for priests, and um, I've got a couple of priest friends, but I keep I keep my distance a little bit because I don't like being familiar with the leadership and I just, you know, when they were telling me, everybody was talking about you and I wasn't familiar with you. So I just want to hand it over to you and you just introduce yourself and tell us about yourself. Okay. 
Um, yeah, uh, I mean, that's probably my least favorite subject is talking about myself, but I can introduce myself briefly. My name is Father Maximilian Mary of Jesus Crucified, and most people call me Father for short. Uh, and then uh, I do have um, a music kind of apostolate. I say apostolate, most of the time is I'm just here uh, in my hermitage, but uh, it's fathermaxmusic.com. I also, I do quite a bit of, or have done quite a bit of work on exposing people to Franciscan Christology. And there's a website called absoluteprimacyofchrist.org, which has basically my whole book on the primacy of Christ, according to the Franciscan thesis on it, with some videos and other uh, documentation and diagrams. And then I also run a novena of Latin masses three times a year. Uh, that's how I sustain myself on uh, Christmas, Easter, and All Souls. And that's uh, novenamasses.org. Uh, so, so I have a, a strong web presence, even though they're mostly static websites. And when I mean static, that means uh, they're just there. I don't have to do anything with them. Uh, whereas the musician websites, I do have to kind of babysit those a little bit and, and put up some new content uh, every now and then. So Instagram and whatever, that's the fathermaxmusic.com where you can find all of that. Um, but my primary vocation is that of prayer. So, uh, um, you know, I'm here to pray for the Pope, the bishops, uh, the priests, the religious, the faithful, and uh, Many of them, like yourself, are kind of in the front lines. And the analogy, the biblical analogy for my vocation would be the, the story of, of where Joshua is, is fighting and Moses is up on the mountain holding his arms up in, in prayer, you know. Uh, and, and that's my job. I'm supposed to be the Moses that's sustaining all of you uh, in the battle through my prayers, through my sacrifices, through the hidden life. And so that's kind of a summary of my my vocation and uh, if I started talking about all, all my whole vocational journey it would be uh, a whole show probably in itself and then some because it's it's been an adventure since my conversion back when I was uh, you know kind of a rock and roller in high school and then into college started college I had my conversion when I was 19 and uh, so it's been 35 years of adventure and there's more adventure when you follow Christ you know this you know, when you follow Christ, when you're faithful to the church, uh, the, the, expect the unexpected uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and just cling to Christ. So <clears throat> so you have a life of prayer and all. Uh, hey, if I start crying or anything, that's just me. Okay. Um, Well, you, I introduced myself. Now you you have to tell me. All I know is is your your handle on Instagram. That's one of the problems with Instagram is you have no idea what they look like or what their real name is. So so how do I call you? I'm just John. I met John. Perfect. I met you at that uh, church, St. Joe's. I oh came yes. With my son, and uh, you made a little one minute video with me for my friend Lindsay and Phil. That okay. Was, you remember okay. you fought with people. I, I do. It was a rainy Sunday morning a month ago. A month ago yesterday. And that's when I met you. And uh the thing about my 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 oldest son recently passed away. Uh -huh. 
emotions are very raw. And uh, talking about prayer, it um, seems a lot, a lot like it gets worse when I pray. And well, uh, I wanted to talk to you about that. And I don't care because other people tell me the same thing. So I'm not embarrassed to um, to uh, be vulnerable or to look weak because I am weak. So I wanted well, maybe, maybe we can just talk about the cross, John. I mean, that's, uh, uh, you know, because it, it's uh, one of the things St. Louis de Montfort, he says that when we, we consecrate ourselves to Mary, so when we're Mary's children, when we pray the rosary, when we belong to her, uh, when we accept that gift that Jesus gave us from the cross to behold her as our mother, uh, which makes sense. I mean, we're incorporated into Christ through baptism. So his father, Abba, father is our father. And that's why he taught us the our father. And his mother is our mother. Uh, and she, while she gave birth to Jesus in joy, virginally, miraculously, uh, that's the perpetual virginity of Our Lady, before, during, and after the birth of Christ, she was always a virgin. She gave birth to us on Calvary in pain, in suffering. And that's why we call her Our Lady of Sorrows and the co-redemptrix of the human race and the new Eve, the true mother of the living, uh, and that's Mother Mary. So, um, yeah, so when we're close to Our Lady, uh, St. Louis de Montfort says, the closer we are to Our Lady, the more uh, she, she will bring us to the cross. And one of the things that I've learned, John, over these past, especially over these past 10 years, is that, um, you know, we talk about embracing and carrying the cross. Uh, but when we embrace and carry the cross and, and do it freely and fully and with love, it doesn't take away the, the cross. Does that make sense? In other words, like just because I'm willing to suffer in union with Christ doesn't mean that it's less painful. Uh, it doesn't mean that the tears go away, the feelings go away, the, the struggle. Um, and uh, yeah, so John, I just lost my dad in March, March 27th. So uh, it's the first, really the first family member I've ever lost. And uh, uh, I happened to be at his bedside when he passed. And yeah. it was such a sacred moment. Uh, you know, as painful as it, it was, I just I felt like it was a privilege to be there. Like my stepmom and I were kind of tag teaming when my dad was dying. Like we he was in hospice, but we we knew that his time was getting close because he was no longer no longer eating or drinking. And uh, so um, uh, we were tag teaming and I knew that, you know, he might pass when she was there or. Or he might pass when I was asleep because I, 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 I'm human, you know. I just wanted to be there as much as I could or have her be there. And, and I happened to be there uh, on my knees uh, saying the prayers for a person. Like I recognized he's, his breathing started to, to um, manifest that it was not normal. So I knelt down and started saying the prayers for the dying. The beautiful, beautiful Latin prayers. And, and there's nothing like it's one thing to... to pray those prayers as a priest, but I've, I've done that twice with religious sisters as a chaplain, uh, with sisters that were dying. 
but I wasn't there when they died. And but with to do that with your dad, it was just it was so uh, the prayers were so powerful. Yeah. And 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 John, just like those that those final prayers, like when the person is actually dying, it says tells the priest to to kneel to to actually to bend over and say the name, the holy name of Jesus in their ear three times. And then you kneel down and it's like a minute and a half, two minutes of these beautiful prayers. So the, the consolation for me, again, it doesn't take away the pain or the cross, but the consolation for me was that the last words I said to my dad before he died was the name of Jesus three times. And the last words my dad heard on planet earth before he died was the name of Jesus three times. And to me, it was like, that was all I could ask for my dad. You know, uh, I don't know, you know, if, if he died in a state of grace, I, I have no way of knowing, you know, he was he had really bad dementia and Alzheimer's and uh, was not a Catholic, didn't really go to church, etc. cetera. Uh, but I know that, that at least from my perspective, God allowed me to be there and gave my dad every opportunity. And that's, you know, that's what I was asking for. You know, no, God can't force anybody. Uh, but he can certainly, through our prayers, be as available as possible for their souls. Um, Is it Romans ten thirteen? I think, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're calling on his name in his ear. Amen. And I know that the neurologists have, excuse me, the neurologists are saying that they know that when a person dies, that their brain stays on sometimes for two and three days mm. and that they can hear and understand inside jokes, nicknames. They can hear every single thing you're saying. So I have yeah. no, your dad. Well, yeah, I, I was no there. Time. I was there, you know, and, and I also used my music. So I played some songs because he was always responsive to music, even uh, with uh, the dementia. Um, but, you know, getting back to the cross. Um, so, like Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes, like the Beatitudes, it's funny because he goes through and he says, blessed uh, are the poor. He's using all the third persons. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, you know, and then he, and then he changes. He goes, and then blessed are you. <laughs> blessed are you when you suffer all kinds of, you know, atrocities, et cetera, for my sake and the sake of the gospel. Uh, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. Uh, and our Lord tells us, obviously, that we are called to carry the cross. So cross. So any, anybody that's preaching that, oh, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be happy, happy and wealthy and everything's going to go your way in this world and you're going to win the lottery. And uh, I mean, come on, Jesus, that's not Jesus. That's not the gospel. Uh, that's, you know, that's. Maybe it sells, so to speak, like maybe that increases donations and people will come to your church because you're making them feel good. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is hard in, in, in that we are called to deny ourselves every day, take up our cross and follow Kim. And the beauty of it is that, uh, you know, in Venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen, you know, he says on my calendar, <laughs> on my calendar, Good Friday always comes before Easter Sunday. So, you know, in order to get to the glory of the resurrection, we have to pass through with Jesus, follow Jesus. We follow Jesus to the resurrection and into the glory of heaven, but we have to follow him 
through the cross, the way of the cross. And it's amazing how many times, like like um, St. James, like when he opens his epistle, he, he says, you know, count it uh, pure joy when you suffer every sort of trial and distress. And St. Peter says, rejoice in the measure that you share in the sufferings of Christ. And yet when you experience the sufferings of Christ, it's suffering. Like it doesn't change the nature of the cross. The cross is still heavy. It's still ugly. It's painful. Um, it has splinters. Uh, and sometimes I think when we start the spiritual life or during our, our spiritual walk, we have this idea, we have this idea of what our cross is going to be. Like we have this idea, you know, uh, this cotton candy idea of a cross that we're going to carry. And so it's what we expect it's going to be. And, you know, like the last thing I thought I would be doing as a Franciscan priest in a religious community, I was the superior of a contemplative religious community in Italy, in the Sibyllini Mountains. The last thing I thought I'd be doing is, is leaving the community. I mean, you have no idea how hard that was, you know, and I, I'm not I'm just sharing with you that that. The, 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 the difficulty, like when I knew it was God's will, that didn't make it easy. Uh, like I did it. God's grace was there. There was joy in doing it, but it was still very painful. Uh, and then there were the irony was, John, the irony was I thought that was the most difficult cross I'd ever confronted in my life. And the thing was, the crosses that Our Lady had in store for me after I left, oh, <laughs> yeah. They made that look like a cakewalk. <laughs> oh, just amazing! Yeah, just amazing. Keep talking, Father. Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. Do that. Uh, well, as Gandalf says in uh, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, when they're departing, uh, he says, "Not all tears are an evil." So you know, tears for our loved ones. Uh, Tears of a mother for her wayward sons and daughters. Uh, I mean, those are precious. You know, those are precious. Uh, and Jesus obviously wept over Jerusalem. He, Jesus wept um, in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, as he saw all of our sins, but also he saw how many. He would die on the cross and he saw all the souls that wouldn't uh, respond to his grace, wouldn't mm. respond to his love. And yet he still died on the cross for them. It's, I've never thought of that before. I've never had that thought, and I've never had the thought of Mary giving birth to the church. You know, watching her son die. It's hard to watch your son die. Yeah, it is. Well, and think about this. Like, I, I'll tell you a story. Um, when I was 16, and this kind of gives you an idea of the kind of life I was living. So I was 16. The day after... Uh, a drinking party. I'm not proud of these things, but it's just part of my history. But the day after uh, I had to go to work and I was still um, like still basically intoxicated. I still, uh, and I, I'm, I, I'm actually, I actually apologized to my friends just about a half year ago. Um, I saw him again after 30 years, I apologized to him. He, he did, doesn't even remember what happened, but I drove him home and I should. I I had no business driving. Well, anyway, the next day, um, I was driving to work. I was late, and I was getting on um, the interstate to, you know, and and trying to get to work uh, at least close. I just woke up in the hospital. Mm. Woke up in the hospital, 
and it's actually a miracle I'm alive because it was a Sunday and this is before cell phones. Uh, and I got hit going on an interstate. I guess I lost control and I got hit uh, right on the driver's side by a car going probably 65 miles an hour. And I didn't have my seatbelt on. And um, there happened to be an off-duty cop driving on the interstate uh, that Sunday, right when it happened. And he pulled over and he put a compress on my head. And that probably saved my life. And he called in, obviously, the for the ambulance. Um, so they put um, they put about they, I, the doctor said he lost count at 50 stitches in my head. And I actually woke up. Um, I woke up in the middle of him putting stitches in my head. So I think the anesthesia wore off or something. And I'm sure that I'm not sure who was more shocked, him or me, that I was awake. Uh, so <clears throat> there I was. And I this doctor you know, nurses are all around me. This doctor is putting stitches in my head. And so I'm starting to ask questions like what happened, et cetera, et cetera. And <clears throat> I'm sorry about the cough. And at that moment, I looked up and just like you see that picture behind me, I could see, uh, you know, in front of me, there was a, a door with a window and standing at through was my mom. So the question I often ask people is, who is suffering more? Now, I was suffering, mm -hmm. but I had anesthesia, and I was kind of in shock and didn't remember anything. But I can tell you that my mom was suffering more than I was, and yet she wasn't suffering anything. She hadn't shed a drop of blood. Uh, she wasn't in the car accident. She wasn't. She was suffering by I was suffering the passion. She was suffering the compassion. And that's what compassio, the, the Latin means, you know, mm. suffer with, with. compassio, compassion, not compassion, the, the American version of compassion, <laughs> but compassio, to suffer with. So on Calvary, um, so when on Calvary, when Jesus is suffering, there's a number of different things that would have made Mary suffer more than any other mother. Number one, um, she's a virgin mother. So Jesus is, you remember in the, the passage, uh, you know, when Eve is created and Adam wakes up from his mystic sleep, Eve had been formed from his side and Adam gazes upon Eve and he says, truly, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Like Eve had been taken from Adam, not from parents, but directly from the flesh and bone of Adam. So Our Lady, when she looked at the cross, she had given Jesus his whole humanity. And she could say, like Adam, she could mm. say of the new Adam, truly, you are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. So she was a mother and, and the only parent, earthly parent of Jesus. So this was 100% of her. Like any mother suffers when their son or daughter suffers, but there's also a father. Like, and yet she suffers greatly. With, but with Our Lady, it was all, the, the entire humanity of Christ was taken from, from her, from her most pure and immaculate heart in the virginal womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. The other thing. Dullness, because we're not. was immaculate. There was no self-interest. 
or self-love and her. So her um, suffering by way of compassion uh, was much deeper, much more pure, uh, much more painful. Uh, so when we see those sorrows piercing her heart, uh, there, there was nothing to dull that. There was no, anyway, I, it's kind of hard to describe in a positive sense, but she suffered more than any of us, any mother could, just by the fact that she was sinless and selfless and holy. Uh, and, and finally, her son was God, like coming to redeem us. So she knew what was happening. She knew that sinners uh, were rejecting their Savior and crucifying their Savior. And this pierced her heart deeply. Um, and then uh, another, another aspect, too, of that is she's praying for all of us on Calvary. She's giving birth to all of us on Calvary. But even on Calvary itself, you have the two sinners that are crucified on either side of Jesus. And one dies blaspheming and the other one dies uh, repentant. And Jesus promises St. Dismas that this day you shall be with me in paradise. And so Our Lady has the joy of seeing a sinner saved uh, repent and enter the kingdom of Christ through the redemption and through her tears. But she also has the sorrow of seeing a soul reject, reject. I mean, he's dying and he rejects God's mercy and grace. Uh, and so that was a big sorrow for our Lord and for Our Lady. Uh, I think that would probably be the biggest sorrow for both of them. Like they willingly underwent their cross for us. Uh, and to see that. So that makes it hard too for us. Like we, uh, and I know as a priest, but also uh, especially parents, how much they suffer when their children go astray, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's the hardest, that's the hardest cross really. I think it's the, that when you suffer and pray and it seems like they, they won't respond, uh, but as long as they have life and breath, we should keep praying and keep sacrificing. Uh, there's still hope. You know, and then afterwards we pray for their souls, obviously, the souls in purgatory. Um, I've never, I've, uh, it's, I'm glad to hear this because uh, I'm, I'm probably the dumbest Catholic that's ever lived because I don't, I mean, it's just, and I kind of, I kind of on purpose hold back because I don't want to, I know it's impossible, but I grew up Southern Baptist. And okay. after a couple of years, you knew everything they could possibly tell you because sure. there's not much to it. And and then you become Catholic and you got this massive castle. It's like you inherited not one castle, but a thousand castles with a million rooms. And mm. there's there's no searching it. It's like going from a, a single wide trailer to a castle. And... And it's just like the things like you said, the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And I don't even know what that means. I've heard it every day for the past 10 years, but I don't know what it means until you start talking like this. Well, I want to talk about the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That's one of my favorite topics. But before I do, uh, my, my professor in dogmatic theology, uh, and he was also for a while my spiritual director and superior father, Peter Fellner, when I was with the Franciscans of the Immaculate. Um, he once said something that really struck me. And he said that a five-year-old that says the creed, 
like that professes the creed that believes uh, that he's more intelligent than all the philosophers because he's his de- point of departure like the philosophers might arrive that God exists but that five-year-old boy when he says I believe in God the Father the Almighty he's he's already above like he's already beyond uh, the philosophers so so there's nothing wrong with being so you're you're calling yourself the dumbest Catholic but anybody that professes the faith is wiser than Aristotle Plato Socrates, because they're practicing their faith. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and that's, that's, we, so we have this huge running start and that's, that's what I love. Uh, when I see, like, I didn't, I wasn't really raised Catholic. I mean, my mom took me to church kind of off and on till my first communion. Uh, and then at that point, um, you know, there were difficulties in my parents' marriage. There was a, a lot of alcohol abuse and just worldliness in general. Uh, and so I, and I was raised in, in the Catholic Church, like I was born in 68. So all my catechism, quote unquote, catechism was in the, the 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, so we were making love balloons for our parents. And I mean, I had no idea what the Trinity was or the incarnation. I received First Holy Communion, but I really didn't like it wasn't really taught me what the Eucharist was. And then that was the end of my Catholic faith. Uh, so I had to learn the faith from scratch. So, so I, I didn't even know if God existed. And yet I see these families, especially in, in uh, these families that go, for example, to the traditional Latin mass, uh, that they're teaching their kids the catechism. And those kids have a running start. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to stay true and they're going to be on the, the path the whole time. Some of them go wayward, some of them, et cetera. But they have a foundation that I never had. Till I, was, I, started, I started learning catechism when I was 19. You know, it's insane. It's just insane. Like I could have, like I could have been, anyway, that, that aside. So, so I really, it, it's a beautiful thing when the, the parents pass on the faith to their children because now they don't have to search to discover meaning in life and does God exist and et cetera. They can know that God exists. And now they have a springboard, a foundation to build a real, you know, solid structure and spiritual life on. Yeah. This is how I taught the catechism to my granddaughter as you know, she couldn't even talk. And I would say okay. Jesus. Jesus. So she knew he suffered for her, you mm. know, by the way, this was this was her first catechism. So Amen. Fifty, fifty years old till I became. Till I went to my first mass. Okay. Wow. And it's just so new to me. You were talking about the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and uh, there's a a, a a blessed now, blessed Gabriel Mary Allegra. Um, he's sometimes called the Saint Jerome of China. He he was a Franciscan missionary from Italy, who had this mission. Um, he was a he was a theologian and expert in uh, the Scripture. Like he had studied the whole Scripture in Hebrew and Greek, uh, and obviously he knew back then the Latin. And he wanted to go to China because in in China at that time. Uh, they did not have the whole Bible translated into the Chinese. So he went there and over the period of decades, he translated the entire 
Bible from the Greek and Hebrew into Chinese, which meant which meant he had to master the Chinese language and then translate it uh, into. But he wrote a, a beautiful book called, <coughs> excuse me, Immaculate Heart of Mary, A Way to God, uh, which used to be in print in English. Uh, now it's very hard to find. Uh, but anyway, he, he speaks of the Immaculate Heart of Mary as a compendium of all of the uh, graces and privileges of Mary. In other words, the Immaculate Heart of Mary sums up all of her compendium. It sums up all, there you have it, it sums up all of her privileges. In other words, it, it, it says everything about Mary. It's about her person. So it's not Mary's assumption, which this is the vigil of her assumption. We're going to celebrate her assumption tomorrow. Um, it's not Mary's birth, which we, we celebrate in September. It's every, every mystery of Mary is found in her heart. And it's also that symbol of love. Uh, and so at, at Fatima, uh, she said that uh, my immaculate heart will be your refuge and the way that, that leads you to God. In the word way, via, uh, in the, like in the, the European languages, it means street or road. So it's the road, like the road, the road to God is the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Refuge also connotes um, like uh, the Ark, Ark of Noah. So the Ark of Noah, like there was, you know, there were four couples, basically one family. Uh, and then there were two of every animal, you know, of all these different beasts and birds. Uh, but the Ark of Mary's heart is open to as many sinners that is, um, her, her heart's open to all of them. They can all come and find refuge in her immaculate heart. So immaculate, uh, when, when my oldest two, my daughter died too, but when my son and daughter, you know, they were like a year apart. Okay. When, so uh, I was a police officer and when I would go off to work, I would have to go off to work while their mom was coming home. Wow. There's this hour gap between I was going to work while, while the mom was coming home. So I'd leave a list of chores to do. And I always wrote it. I was, I was backslid Baptist. I wouldn't know. I, I wasn't Catholic at all. And I would write on top of that chore list. It will be immaculate. <laughs> Always wrote that the house will be immaculate or there will be a beating when I get home. And I, I put that on their chore list. I left it at the top of the stairs. When they come in from school, they would see that you will immaculate every room of this house. count, <laughs> and So when I hear the immaculate heart of Mary, my mind goes to immaculate um, thinking that it's perfect, uh, spotless. and Exactly. So, but I never made that connection until you said that a few minutes ago. I didn't know what they were talking about. Well, it, it's amazing how often if you, if you read the actual, um, like if you read the Vulgate of St. Jerome in Latin, how many times the word immaculata or immaculato, etc. appears. And what it means is without... Uh, macula. Macula is a stain. So it's stainless without blemish. Uh, it's completely pure. It's a, it's a, it's a negative way of defining Our Lady's purity. In other words, um, like you, 
the way that we like God is not finite. He's infinite. Uh, you know, he's immeasurable. Like we can't measure him. Um, he's outside of time. And so our, our lady is, is not, she's without blemish. It's so hard. So St. Um, uh, St. Anselm, who's a doctor of the church, he says that Mary is that purity beyond which you can't even imagine. Like, if you think you can imagine a purity greater than Mary, you haven't understood Mary. She is purity itself. And, and that's at Lourdes. At Lourdes, Our Lady, when she appeared to St. Bernadette, uh, she, she said, uh, and this is very interesting, she said, I am the Immaculate Conception. Mm. Now, it's one thing to say I'm immaculately conceived, but she said, I am the Immaculate Conception. And if you use this analogy, it's one thing to say, for example, I'm clean. It's another thing to say, I am cleanliness, like I am cleanness itself, or I uh, like to say, I am white, like pure white as snow uh, versus saying I'm whiteness itself. Mm. Uh, so Our Lady is just, she is purity. She is. And so we just sometimes define that negatively, immaculate, without blot blemish or spot or sin or stain and so her heart is so pure uh, pure immaculate sorrowful glorious uh, in heaven um yeah in she's luke a, king james bible it, it says that she's uh full of grace and i heard father ripperger i love that name father rip ripperger i don't know how to pronounce it but it's a, it's a scary name for an exorcist <laughs> he said that um her you know the angel says she's full of grace you know hell mary full of grace he he said there was not possible to find one speck that was not to, she was full of god's grace and that no one else has except for jesus no one's been that full and uh you saying this just kind of um opens my eyes up to what to what this means yeah. I grew it's, up, it's, we just, yeah. we disdained Mary. Okay. We did. We disdained her because we thought she was trying to rob Jesus of his glory. Cause you remember when God would say, I'll share my glory with no one, but in the high priestly prayer, Jesus wanted to share his glory, mm. which goes yeah, against their premises for despising her. John 17. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's very interesting because our Lord, in, in, in that same discourse before he does his priestly prayer, he says, um, if you love me, you will keep my commands and my father will love you and we will come and make our home within you. So if you read that and ask this question, OK, he says, if you if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, who loved Jesus? more than anybody else on the earth, his mother, mm -hmm. who kept the word of God more than anybody else. It was his mother. So those words apply to her and especially to her immaculate heart. So if you love me and you keep my commandments, you will keep my commandments and my father will love you and we will come and make our home in you. So her heart is a home. It's a sanctuary of the most holy trinity par excellence. I mean, if that's true of us, how much more so of the mother of God? 
you know, John, another interesting thing, uh, Pope Pius XII uh, made an interesting point. He said that, um, you know, God formed Adam from the, the dust of the virgin earth in, in, in uh, the Garden of Eden. And so God didn't need a mother to form Adam. And so the new Adam, Jesus Christ, God doesn't need a mother. He chooses to have a mother. So she is chosen, predestined, not because God needs her to give humanity to, to Christ, but because God wants her to be part of this mystery, of this plan. And that's, I think, what uh, our, you know, the Protestants often miss is this was God's will. It was just God's choice. And that Mary was not just like a test tube that God used and threw away or uh, that God needed her. Uh, and, and therefore, she just he used her. And like the image they have of God when they say that about Mary is like, well, if that's what God thinks and does with Mary, well, why does he care about me? But it's like they lowered as, on a concubine, yeah. a, a common concubine instead of the spouse of the Holy Spirit. She, mm. she, they say she's just an old sinner, a dead sinner woman. In need of a savior, I've heard that so many times. Yeah, I comments, I get hate mail, and they say she's just another sinner woman in need of a savior. And I'm thinking, if her house, you know, you don't go in somebody's house and talk about their mama. (laughs) (laughs) It was. you know, the, the, the big thing, there was a big debate about the Immaculate Conception in the medieval times. And uh, thanks be to God, there was a Franciscan who continued and, and championed and defended the tradition that Mary was immaculately conceived. Because basically, most of the theologians, including St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, held that she was conceived with the sin. And then after, at some point, before the Annunciation, she was purified or sanctified uh, so that she was full of grace. But uh, Blessed John Duns Scotus, he basically, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, argument or presentation of the Immaculate Conception. And it's this, is that Mary is actually more indebted to Jesus for dying on the cross because she was redeemed at the moment of her conception. In other words, we're liberated from sin. She was preserved from sin. And both our liberation and her preservation are uh, in view of uh, or after for us. Uh, it, but they flow from the merits of the shedding of the blood of Jesus on Calvary. So Jesus is her savior even more so than sinners because he redeemed her in a more perfect way. That is, he redeemed her by way of preservation in view of the merits of his bloody passion. Uh, and then he redeems all of us, the children of Adam and Eve uh, as well, but, but it's a liberative through baptism uh, and uh, you know, being born again through baptism into to a state of grace. And this he merits again through his passion. So when you understand it from that perspective, it's actually Mary is more indebted to God for his mercy than, than the poor sinner because the mercy of God was applied to her at the first moment of her existence. Uh, And so she's more indebted in that sense 
Uh, but because of that, she is also able to participate in a unique way in his passion because she is immaculate, because she is a mother, because she is the virgin. And so when she suffers with Christ, she suffers in a subordinate way, but she suffers as the new Eve uh, in conjunction with the new Adam. Just as the first Eve had a part to play in original sin, even though it's Adam that commits the original sin as the head of the human race, Eve had a part to play. Uh, and uh, same with the new Eve, the Blessed Virgin Mary. So sometimes it's just a misunderstanding. And, and this is, you, you were raised Baptist, so you know it's just drilled into you and you don't ever really get to reflect or hear uh, the, the truth about uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary. The, the I, I got to thinking, you know, because it's something I struggle with as a convert. I got to thinking, now, what if Jesus' mother lived across the street from me? If, for real, she lived right over there. Yeah. The window, and Jesus' mama lived right over there. I'd be beating that door down every chance I got to, to ask her, will you tell your son? Will you ask your son, what would your son, you know, I would be wearing that. If she lived next door to me, she put a restraining order on me. <laughs> that door down. She would not. She, this is, this is what it means to have Mary living. She doesn't live next door. She's right here. You know what I mean? That's but like, that's, and that's just, that's it. We're knocking on the door like 50 times, you know, yeah. and then we sometimes, some of us pray it like, you know, just continue. Like Padre Pio was like you. you. Mother Mary had to put a restraining order on him. <laughs> I'm teasing. Yeah. He just he didn't stop praying those rosaries. Uh, but that's that's the point. You you get it. That's why we pray the rosary. That's why we pray to Mary. Is is exactly like you were saying. Like if 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 Mary was available to me, I would want her to teach me about her son, the mysteries of her the, the gospel, and I would want her to pray on my behalf and ask. Yeah. You know, and and so that's a John. That's so beautiful because that's a beautiful way that I can now present the rosary. <laughs> well, I ask a I ask a relative of mine, and and my relative is not Catholic, and the Mary issue come up, and I said, "You mean to tell me if Jesus' mother lived next door to you, you wouldn't go out of your way to cut her grass?" to check on her, to call her, to fellowship with her. And he said, no. I'm like, what the hell? Are you serious? You wouldn't go over there and see Jesus' mama? And I'm just thinking, what breeds that that resentment that yeah. happened? Just, yeah. I can't believe it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to understand fully. Um, I think part of it is that they, like, if they accept that that Mary is the mother of the whole Christ, head and members, um, then they realize that the Catholic Church was right on that. So they have to keep harping on the things that they disagree on, um, as opposed to just humbly reading the scriptures and seeing that Jesus said, behold your mother, you know. To John, and and it's not even John. And John makes sure in his entire gospel that he's never named. It's the disciple whom Jesus loved. So 
Mary is the mother of any disciple whom Jesus loves. So they, they, you know, it's it, it but it's the same thing because if they, if they admit, so to speak, that Mary actually has importance, um, has a role, if they admit any way that the Catholic Church is right on that, well, then maybe the Church is right on the Eucharist. Maybe the Church is right on having seven sacraments instead of two. And now the megachurches don't have any. They, they don't even believe in baptism. And, and then these megachurches, they, they, they actually will say that the, the uh, baptism by water, that's just a symbol. It's, you, it's the profession of your faith, yeah, symbol. which means that their marriages aren't valid, which means they have no sacraments. So we have people that call themselves Christians who don't even believe, like they aren't even, their baptism isn't even valid. And we're not talking about the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, where they're not Christians because they don't believe Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. We're talking about Christians who profess that Jesus is Lord, and yet they manage to, uh, anyway, it's just insane. It's, yeah, it's, uh, hey, how can you accept this book as being from God? <coughs> and that they want to, they want to squint their eyes that the this book come from the Catholic Church, and it didn't even come to three eighty two. The Catholic yeah, Church three hundred years before the canon. Not to mention the King James version didn't come out in sixteen eleven, but they say this is God's word from the Catholic Church and going to deny the Catholic Church. That makes no sense to me. Yeah, the, the other thing about that, too, is, is uh, I mean, they, they know historically that the gospel that St. Paul preached, like, you can't, there's no such thing as sola scriptura, because St. Paul, there was no New Testament when he went and preached. Like, when he preached in Athens, like, he couldn't open the, the Bible in Greek and start quoting from it, because it hadn't been written yet, mm. which means that there is... The word of God comes to us in two ways. It's the spoken word and the written word. And the written word comes from the spoken word. So we call it scripture and tradition. And the tradition continues. That's the word tradire in Latin means to hand on. Uh, so that's, uh, it's also where we get the word traitor, to hand over. <laughs> so that's what Judas was. He was a traditore. He was a... Yeah, so the, um, the handing handing down, handing over, and so the the tradition is the word of God that continues to be preached and spoken, uh, and then there's the written word, and the canon was closed with the death of the last apostle, and then the canon, as you know, was defined uh, definitively, uh, you know, by the church uh, a couple hundred years later, because there were some debates about some of those pseudo gospels and etc. Yeah. And then, of course, they, they rejected. This is another interesting point, John. Um, the uh, the Protestants decided to go with the Jews uh, in rejecting the uh, Greek books that had been translated in the Septuagint. So they reject, for example, the beautiful book of Esther and Tobit and the Maccabees. They reject those books because uh, the Jews rejected him. But basically, the Jews were rejecting the Septuagint because that was the Catholic Bible. So every time you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, St. John, St. Paul, anytime they quote uh, the Old Testament, they always 
quote, because they're writing in the Greek, it's always taken from the Septuagint. They, they never take a quote from Hebrew and translate it themselves. No, the Septuagint was the official Catholic Christian translation of the Old Testament. So the, the Protestants wanted to reject that um, and to reject <coughs> and to go with the Hebrew scriptures, uh, which the Jews. And it's funny because they're basically siding with the anti-Christians, the, the, the Jews who rejected Christ as the Messiah. Uh, and as opposed to the Jews who accepted Christ as the Messiah, like St. Peter and Blessed Virgin Mary and <laughs> St. Paul uh, and the Jewish converts. But they, they rejected the Septuagint because the Christians were using that to show that, that uh, Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, and that's how they lost some of their books, because they weren't extant at that point in, in the Hebrew language. Uh, so it's it's just it's it's uh, it is amazing when you go look back at um, the scriptures uh, and how the, the the Protestants, you know, did reject uh, um, basically they reject the Septuagint or just say it's 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 a translation it's a nice translation but it has some extra books and we just go right to the Hebrew that's kind of their their idea their notion. It just, Saint Paul Saint Paul he was quoting the Septuagint he wasn't it, going back it, to Hebrew. It's uncontestable. You got Jesus, the God-man, quoting out of a Catholic book, the Septuagint. He's quoting out of the Septuagint, not the King James. And you would think logically in a court of law. I mean, if, if God, the God-man Jesus, is quoting out of... Well, Jesus, Jesus would have been using the Hebrew... But when the apostles write to the Greek-speaking um, Jews and Gentiles, they're the ones, whenever they quote those Old Testament passages, they're always quoting the Psalms and everything from the Septuagint. Um, so it's actually, it's very interesting when you watch the Passion, if you watch the Passion of the Christ uh, in that uh, movie, because um, my, my dogmatic theologian, uh, Father Peter, he believes that Jesus spoke basically spoke all the languages, but the, in, in the New Testament, you can see that he spoke um, Hebrew, obviously Hebrew, Aramaic, but that he also spoke the Latin of the Romans and that he spoke Greek. So in the in the dialogue with, with Pontius Pilate, when they bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate, Pilate, because he's the Roman procurator in that area of, of uh, Jerusalem, he obviously speaks Hebrew. So he speaks to Jesus in Hebrew and then Mel Gibson has Jesus respond in the Latin. It's a very subtle thing. Uh, and so Pontius Pilate then continues the dialogue with Jesus in Latin, you know, asking, well, what is truth? You know, that whole dialogue there. Um, but there's also the passage in St. John where the Greeks are trying to speak to Jesus. So they go to Philip and Philip goes to Andrew and Philip and Andrew come to Jesus and say that the Gentiles, the Greeks want to speak to you. And then Jesus gives this discourse that that would not like it, it wasn't a Jewish discourse. It was a very Greek or Gentile discourse. He says, unless the grain of wheat falls to the ground, it remains but a grain of wheat. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. Well, anybody can understand that. Whereas when he's talking to the apostles, the Jews, 
He's saying that the scriptures will be fulfilled. I'll be betrayed, handed over, spat upon, and I will rise on the third day in, in fulfillment of the scriptures. So he's speaking to them as ones who know the prophecies and the Psalms and the Old Testament. Um, so Father Peter points out that Jesus probably spoke that, that, that passage about the grain of wheat falling into the ground in Greek to the Greek people. Uh, anyway, it's just, it's a, it, I found that fascinating because Jesus obviously would know, just he would have an infused knowledge of all languages. Uh, I mean, if the apostles had it after the gift, you know, the descent of the Holy Spirit, certainly our Lord, who was filled with the Holy Spirit by virtue of his divinity, uh, would have known all these human languages and known their hearts and could speak to them, etc. cetera. Uh, I don't know. It just fascinates me because I, I, I love languages, but it's not, it's not easy to learn them. Right. I know. You know Father Mitch Paqua? Oh, yes. Father, okay. yes. I used to drive for him a lot. I was his oh, really? And his, I was his muscle on, behind the camera. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, he would try to teach me how to learn things. And he told me to, to learn definitions backwards. He, really? He would take a word and you learn it backwards. Okay. To, means but you cleared something up to me that I've been mistaken about um the Septuagint uh when when Paul quotes the Old Testament or when the writer quotes the Old Testament they're using the Septuagint where Jesus right. is speaking you know to his audience whether it be Aramaic or, or whatever and or answering the I think that was John twelve or thirteen where he's talking where Peter wants to bring the Greeks to him and yeah that, that's right it's it, it's before John yeah I think it's around John 12 somewhere in there it's just before yeah. the the Last Supper discourse so yeah. that's right in that, that area and it's I think it's it's Philip and Andrew that that bring uh yeah the that, that clears it up for me a lot because Paul when Paul would quote the Old Testament he'd quote the Greek version of the Old Testament Septuagint where yes when he's talking about Jesus, Jesus was speaking in the, uh, you know, the native language to the people. Right. Yeah, that that clear that clears it up a lot a lot for me. But I just don't see how anybody can cannot see that. You know, I I just. It, it's, well, faith faith is a gift. You know, John. There's a, a, a simple analogy that I think uh, is really helpful and. Um, and the analogy is one of my professors used this analogy. He says, you know, if you are outside of like a beautiful old traditional Catholic church, say in Europe, that has stained glass windows, if you're outside on a sunny day and you look at those stained glass windows from the outside, they make no sense at all. It looks like dirty glass, dirty broken glass, really. It doesn't. But if you step inside the church, and the light's shining through, you actually see the beauty and the light of those mysteries. And so he said, his analogy was that if you don't have faith, it's never going to make sense. It's never going to make sense. And that's why we have to pray uh, both for ourselves, an increase of faith, but also for those who don't have the gift of faith. Because once they come in, and you experience this through your conversion, I experience it through my conversion, once you come in, and then you see it, and it's like, you see the those stained glass windows from the inside. It's like now it makes sense. It's so beautiful, and you realize how much you missed, or at least myself, like all those years. Like I went through my entire teenage years without knowing any of that. 
I didn't know that like I had the natural law that I disobeyed, unfortunately, but I didn't have like a basic, the catechism, the 10 commandments, the sacraments, uh, the creed, how to pray. I didn't have any of that. Uh, and so then when I discovered that it was like, Whoa, it's so beautiful. And, and like, when you're trying to describe it to somebody who doesn't have faith, um, it's like you're talking to them about a world, this fantasy world or something. They like, that's nice for you. If it makes you happy, that's, that's good. You know, but I'm just gonna, you know, Birmingham. Oh yeah. Yeah, Well, not Birmingham. I've been to Hansville, but not Birmingham. Okay. If you ever come to Birmingham, I go to the cathedral. Okay. Cathedral. And every time I, post videos of our uh, N.O. mass, everybody thinks it's a Latin mass because it's so proper and beautiful and it's mostly Latin except for the homily. Well, people wouldn't understand this, but if you go to the 8 o'clock mass, this only happens at 8 o'clock mass, and you will see the, the, the sun hits the stained glass, but only comes out. Rays. Mm. Oh, the, the, the bluish white with the red, the divine mercy rays that come out. Okay. Through from all angles of the stained glass and put, they put the, the colors everywhere on people. Like it'll hit the priest with the divine mercy colors or, or somebody's back sitting in front of you. And and I took like 50 pictures of it to show people and to show the priest and Father Jarabit, who's my, you know, he's my priest. You know, he said, there's no way, the way that all this stained glass is, he doesn't understand how the sun can only go through those two colors because there's nothing there for the sun to zero in on just to do those colors because mm. he had never seen it. But I'll send you, I'll t- later on, I ain't going to blow your phone up, but I'll send you the pictures later on. But I can tell a, a non-Catholic that it means nothing to them. Sure. It sure. doesn't mean anything. And I'm thinking you're being robbed. Yeah. Well, I was robbed. So we have to pray. We just have to pray for him, John, and uh, pray him in. And, and we, have to, we, we know that the Blessed Mother is, uh, you know, uh, we can knock on her door with the rosary. So you and I have to uh, keep pounding on her door for those people that don't know yet. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and nobody wants their, their, you know, salvation and sanctification more than she does, you know? Uh, so we want to join, join forces with uh, the queen of heaven and earth. So I'm guessing we should probably wrap this up, huh? Yeah, I, my wife's in there. I, I'm wanting to tell her everything you said in case she's watching. I got some good friends watching. Uh, Susan is watching, but I was wanting to know if you could do, if you could bless us, if you could say a prayer and bless us, because a lot yeah. of people watch this over time. They may not yeah. watch it, but they'll be watching it. Right, and so it's it's we're asking for a blessing. Like I can give a blessing, but we're we're kind of asking for a blessing because you're not standing physically in front of me. Um, but yeah, why don't we just, we'll close with a prayer and then ask for a blessing from God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your gifts, all of your love, 
poured out and given to us in Jesus and in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we ask you to truly be our loving Father uh, and allow us to truly be your, your children, to follow your way, your plan, uh, and to know your holy will and put it into practice. We also thank you that we are part of a family. You are our Father. Jesus is our divine elder brother, our model, our friend, and Mary is our immaculate virgin mother and our queen. And so we turn to Our Lady and we humbly pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you and bless us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, John. Have me on again. We'll talk. There's so many topics we could touch. Touch upon. Thank you. Thank you. I'll see you. Okay. 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 God bless you, brother. Bye, Father. God bless you. Bye bye.